0: Hi there, Chris here. Just a quick reminder that if you're enjoying these shows, there are two ways you can support the long war interviews. First, go to the show notes and check out the organizations that the guests recommend. If you're able, please donate some time or money to these groups. They're doing important work. Second, if you're interested in hearing stories about my time overseas, pick up a copy of my memoir, Chasing Alexander. A Marine's Journey Across Iraq and Afghanistan. It was a Book Life Reviews editor's pick, and they say, quote, with grit and sincerity, Martin will have readers who appreciate action-packed war stories and history marveling at this truly enjoyable memoir. End quote. If that sounds interesting to you, you can order a copy at any online retailer. Thanks again for listening. Hey everyone. It's Chris here with your Tuesday episode of The Long War Interviews. Now, before I get to today's interview, I want to talk about two quick things. Uh, Before I do, just a heads up that this episode deals with people dying overseas. If that's not something that you want to hear, maybe skip this one. Okay, so my first point is that when I started this project, I, I wasn't really sure how it was going to go. You know, would people actually talk to a stranger on the internet about their time overseas? Would it be difficult to build enough of a connection to get people to open up? And I have to say I'm surprised at how generous and willing all of the guests have been to talk candidly about their time in Iraq and Afghanistan. I really appreciate it. I, I also know, for me at least, I love talking about my time in the Marines. The problem is more that a lot of people—it's—it's it's not right to say that they don't want to hear it. That's not it. It's more of an issue of that people who weren't in the military don't have the context, you know, the background information to understand the significance or gravity or hilarity of military stories. So I hope, I hope that makes sense. Anyway, the second point I wanted to bring up is that I've been unsure how to broach certain topics on this show, specifically how to talk about casualties. Now, when my unit was uh, in Afghanistan, in Marjah, we had 15 guys killed in action, and somewhere between 20 and 25% of the unit was wounded. You know, pretty, pretty rough stuff. And that's a huge part of the military. You Seeing, inflicting, or just being around violence. And I think I've been deliberately shying away from talking about that on this show. Not because it makes me uncomfortable or anything, but I you know, I wasn't sure how to bring it up. If if you know what I'm talking about, you know. But I think today's guest, Carl Plones, does just a beautiful job about talking about people who were killed and wounded in a way that you know, keeps their individuality and their identity, but it's also fairly matter-of-fact. He just naturally strikes that balance of, you know, this awful thing happened to my friends, but that's part of the job, and this is what we did from there. And I don't I don't think I can hit that balance on my own. So thank you to Carl for you know helping me cross that bridge. Now before I get to talking to Carl, uh, the organization that he brought to me is the Sea Cadets. They're a youth leadership program that's run by the Navy. Carl described it as if ROTC is to train officers, then the Sea Cadets train enlisted men and women for careers in the Navy and Marines. So if there's a middle schooler or a high schooler in your life that needs some direction, maybe needs some structure, and they're curious about joining the military, Point them to the Sea Cadets. I'll have a link about them in the show notes. Now, let's begin the show.
1: My name's Carl Plunz. My introduction to in the military came in 1982 under the honorable Mr. Reagan. The Marine Corps was looking to expand itself. Reagan wanted to beat the Soviets at this whole arms race thing. So I was able to get in. My mom and dad insisted that I have some sort of electronics training, which I signed up for their mechanical electrical program. That put me in field comms, which actually has very little bearing to the civilian world. I served with 9th Comm Battalion for the most part. It was a peaceful tour, four years. And at the end of it, I was a terminal lance. So, you know, I, I parted ways. I got the honorable discharge, you know, I left on good terms. I had no, no bitter, no bitter things to say about the Corps. I did like every other Marine does. You know, my hair got about three feet long and I got the uh, star stash. So, but in time, it kind of came back to this stuff where uh, there's very little to grab onto. After the core, I got a job, put myself through Purdue University. I took about 10 years part time, being a husband and then a dad, and then a part time student. It wasn't the four and done thing, but it, it did work out, and I got into teaching. I was doing real fine with life and was actually teaching at a high school, and it was 9 11. And one of my colleagues came in and me. goes you know stuff about history do you know what just happened with the twin towers okay no i'm in my room it's my prep i don't have a tv So what happened i walk over to her classroom and you can see on the news there's a plane that hit one of the twin towers i'm thinking to myself in the 1940s there was an incident with a b-25 bomber where it was foggy out and he was flying too low and he hit the empire state building that was my first go-to point when the second one hit that was the oh no moment. Now, my, the Marines hardwired my brain in a certain way. I can't sit on the sidelines and just let stuff go. Kept cycling through my head, they're attacking my country. They're attacking my country. Uh, at this time in my life, though, I had about 15 years' time breaking in service. So I looked at the Marines once, and they said, I'm just too old. But the CBs, the Navy mobile construction guys, were looking for people who had prior service and were willing to train in a certain construction field. At the time I was more than happy to sign on the dotted line. I had the, we fight part of the, we build, we fight model, that the CVs have, but not so much the, we build. I signed up to be a heavy equipment operator. So I got like case 1150 license, a Komatsu front end loader with attachments, five ton tactical dump, all these things to work in construction. However, when I reported a battalion, they cracked open my SRB and said, wait a minute, you're a communicator. You're over here now. So I was put in the headquarters company, Complatoon, and um, 15 years behind the curve on technology because back in my day when I was doing a Prick 77, they had dials and knobs, and it wasn't all this keypad digital stuff. We actually had a physical tape that you had to run through to encrypt it. But it wasn't hard, and you know, when, when you know how to use a yellow canary and you know how to speak the language of communicators, it's like riding a bicycle and get back on it and you do what you do. and during our, our field exercise training or pre-mob, pre-mobilization run-up, we had a fax field exercise. I know the Navy, your bees call it something different from what the Marines might, but it was a full-on set of war games. And I, I seemed to shine enough, like a new penny, both as a uh, combat operations center petty officer and uh, the company. I'm uh, sorry, the battalion commander's radio operator for the tail end of the exercise. It didn't hurt that our battalion commander. Um, Commander Hedrickson started off in the world as a Marine himself, went out and got his engineering degree and then became a, uh, CEC officer, civil, uh, civil engineer corps and took the commission in the CBs. I think he topped out at Admiral cause he was up and coming. He got us to, he got us to a point as a battalion where his two predecessors had failed, finally, we were evaluated as combat ready. And so we, we stepped into the rotation. January the 11th, 2006, I spent my 43rd birthday getting mobilized, filling out all the paperwork. It was a little sidebar. I was fighting some blood pressure issues. And the corpsman said, hey, you know, I see you got a note from your doctor saying you're in good condition and stable, but they only gave me like one set of BP readings. Can you call your hospital and find out, you know, you got some other ones that you can get to me? I'm thinking, oh, no, no, I'm not missing this boat. <laughs> I didn't get this far to sit there and have somebody tell me that I need to go see a doctor four more times to get my VP done under 80. So I went around the corner, pulled a piece of paper out of my wallet, jotted down some numbers and dates, said, how about this, doc? And um, he's like, oh, yeah, this is great. This will work. I'll just record it now. I'm like, okay. So I kind of sort of lied my everload butt off to get into the unit to be mobilized with the guys I just finished training a couple of years with. Made it all the way up to E5, and I will tell you right now, when crossed over from the Marines to the Navy, Navy's easier. It's <laughs> flat out, period. Mile and a half run, and the amount of time I had to do it my age, I could have stopped, had a sandwich, read a cut chapter from a book, started jogging again, and still made time. So, you know, push-ups instead of sit-ups or elbow bends, depending on who you're, you know, who's counting for you. None of this Marine Corps, you know, all the way up, all the way down with the 20 pound set of canteens on you you to do one pull up and count as part of your PFT score. And being a somewhat educated man, I was very good at taking tests and deconstructing test questions. So when it came down to me taking the E5 exam, I I, I pretty much nailed it. And I, I think if I remember the career planner at the time saying that mine was the highest score in the reserve center. So that put, that put me in the first tier of promotion. So when they handed out my warrant, I wasn't just frocked. It was, boom, I'm in E5 now. Got mobilized, went to uh, Port Wanimi California. It's in Ventura, naval Base, Ventura County. It's like the West Coast Seabees go there. And uh, we started all of our classroom training and stuff.
0: Just to interject here, so this is, you know, the Iraq War is kind of at its peak, 2005, 2006, 2007. What kind of, what were they telling you at the time to help you prepare for this deployment?
1: Um, there was a handful of guys from my battalion, NMCB 25 who had gotten mobilized and were sent in 03 for the initial invasion. And you know listening to them was like listening you know, to, to words coming from Jesus because they had actually seen the elephant, been there and knew what the lay of the land was like. But all of our instructors who just come back from uh, their tour we're in country like weeks before they became instructors. We're, we're saying, you know, guys, this is not the war that you went to last time. It's completely different. You know, what I could uh, garner from papers and, and just talking to people who had been there, this was a full on guerrilla war. This was not a conventional, there's the Iraqi Republican guard. This is the guy who was working with you in the chow hall is gonna turn around and try and find a hole in the wall so he can plant a bomb in there. and and you and everybody you know. The the biggest thing they kept on going over and beating in our heads was IEDs, 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 IEDs. Anything and everything can be an IED. And, you know, when you go to your your training and you you see that they purposely put an MRE bag on the side of the road, so you call it in, let EOD EOD supposedly get it and fix it, then you get to a wreck and you notice that Everything is strewn with trash everywhere has stuff all over it. You're in your helicopter, you know, you're flying along, just mind your own business, but you look down, it looks like one big garbage dump and you're thinking, okay, this is just about screwed. But we did about three months of pre-training did a short, short week in Kuwait, and then stepped over and replaced NMCB 22. Kind of disappointed in certain things in that, in the initial mobilization. When we got pulled our gear. I mean, we're all in our desert utilities, you know, the Meebic pattern ones, not your cool dot, dot com camings, but one generation behind everybody because we're reservists and we're CVs, so go figure. Again, another little sidebar in the 90s, during the, during the first Gulf War, they had to get the bees out of the olive drab sateens because they were the same style of uniform the Iraqi Republican Guard had. So, you know, hey guys, you're going to camo up real fast now because you better just camo up. Yeah, you didn't want to get confused about that stuff. But yeah, we had all that. But my body armor was woodland pattern camo. I'm thinking to myself, great, this just lays the perfect trace silhouette where you can shoot anything that's outside the, the woodland pattern and you'll hit me. Thanks, Navy. No, but we were fortunate enough not to be in the 03 crowd when we, we, we got there in the spring of 06 because everything was already set up. You know, it was gracious living by, by most standards. You know, I had spent the spin up time in a big open warehouse, which was turned into like a ginormous squad bay. And, you know, coming from the Marines in 82, my first barracks in 9th combat Battalion was a wooden structure, two stories high, and the rumor had it that it was built in 1942 as temporary housing for the war. So, you know, open squad bay, nothing in the middle wall lockers, bunk beds, wall lockers, bunk beds. So being in a bunk bed, a room full of guys, it was not culture shock to me, but some folks opted out and were able to get like a uh, hotel rooms out in town. And I think for them, most of the mobilization was a binge drinking event. Hmm. I knew we weren't acting as high speed as we needed to, but you know, as in freshly minted E5, they weren't asking opinions. It didn't seem very, very, you know, survey conscious consensus building. It was like, here, do this, do that. Now in in the uh, Marines being an E4, you're a corporal, you're an NCO, you're a leader of Marines, right? Mm -hmm. Being an E4 in the Navy is like being an E3 in the Navy, except with sharper looking uh, rankings in you. As an E4 too, though, I thought it was kind of humorous because our reserve battalion was stationed at Fort McCoy, Wisconsin. We had a kind of a Midwest orientation. So getting mobilization training on an army base, those soldiers oftentimes confused the Crow with the Chevron, with the Colonel's Eagle. Friend, I received so many crisp salutes from young PFCs and specialists. It was hysterical. One of my, one of my buddies, my battle buddy, a guy named Ron Wallen, I'm real tight with even today. We would walk to Chow every, every time you know, we had, they had to go and, he would just be laughing hysterically. I'm, Hey, if they're going to salute me, more power to them. I'm not going to decline that salute. It's up, it's down, it's there. But yeah, the mobilization process, you know, a it, it, typical military thing, a lot, a lot of stuff getting crammed into a short amount of time. When I was in 9th Com, we trained forever in 29 palms. I knew what, I knew what a beach with no water looked like for, real and just you know to hydrate like crazy sunscreen your friend and you know the big floppy boonie cover is actually better than anything else you can get so i knew better going in some guys didn't we had some heat casualties early on but that was in kuwait so it was you know something that could be taken care of and, and bounce back real fast like me and one of the other communicators a guy who's another former marine he was a 2811, which is like a cable splicer in comms he was, he was a tech head, so he scored better on the ASVAB as an 18 year old than I did. But he and I were running the Combat Ops Center. We had a port and starboard thing going on. He got days, I got midnights. We uh, were at uh, TQ Alticatum Air Base, mm-hmm. which, um, interestingly enough, is uh, the same place that the bombers that Saddam used to uh, gas the Kurds were stored. Uh, I'd love for the Veterans Administration and Department of Defense to come clean on everything that was in the dirt out there, because I mean, a lot of guys that I know have all sorts of like minor health issues that if you look at just one or two of them at a time, it doesn't seem like much. When you talk about everybody having some sort of respiratory issue, I got to wonder if there wasn't some sort of latent exposure issue because I'm, I'm betting that the Iraqi army was not the high-end maintenance and suppression kind of people when it came down to things like VX and sarin, and so I'm betting there were more one incident where something got cracked open, spilled. Maybe five guys get whacked because it it's the Iraqi army, and cleanup is four guys with a shovel. Then just the general contaminants and pollution out there. Yeah. Uh, I'm getting the, kind of an Asian orange vibe on this stuff. Was everybody's on the burpit registry? But I don't know what kind of fruit that's borne out for anybody. But I knew what high was all about. I knew about hydration. The the guy in charge of us at Takeda was a, a builder. Uh, builder chief guy by the name of Genco. He was not the brightest crayon in the box. He didn't understand why we needed to have communications until we had our first code red. Now, I don't know if you guys call the code red, but when we had indirect fire hit the base, that's when uh, they issued a code red and then everybody kind of hunkered down. And you know, we had to have 100% accountability. And the battalion CO wanted that, like, boom, done. And so if you, you didn't chase people around. You didn't get it across in a, in a sit rep, in two heartbeats. He was getting angry and that you don't need a mad 05 five, not a good thing in your career, not a good thing for the life that you lead, but uh, he had very little regard for the comp section. And um, as fate would have it, the comp section was having some trouble finding people who were willing to do the whole COC thing, because hmm. I mean, <laughs> It's like a 911 dispatch center in a combat zone. So anything and everything is flying through there all the time. And it's either intensely boring or it's overwhelmingly terrifying because you're that link. And, you know, something goes south, they're hollering help to you. Communications in country was horrendous. But they were having trouble finding somebody that was halfway decent and doing the COC thing. And so my name came up. So I got moved from TQ to Alasada Air Base, which was a shade better. Not a whole lot, of, a lot of sand, a lot of, a lot of hot, not too many uh, locals, you know, people complaining all over the place, uh, hot chow, what are you guys worried about? But I, I was, you know, did a left-seat right-seat thing for about half the time that anybody else did.
0: I know the rumor, I flew into TQ when I went to Ramadi flew back out, and the rumor was always that Al-Assad had a swimming pool. Can you confirm or deny
1: that rumor? <sighs> Yes, I got to go in at once after we were in the place. Um, but just once? Yeah, just the one time. I didn't know it existed until that moment, but it was real interesting to see signs in the door that the commanding general, I don't remember who it was, but they had put out something about, there'll be no jackassery in the swimming area. I think that word is made up, but you know, it got the message across. But yeah, there is a pool on Elside Air Base, and I did go in there. I kind of had a routine going on when I was in there because, you know, you get in that battle rhythm thing where you're used to your day being structured a certain way and, you know, trying to get some sleep during the day, which not always successful. I'm a Catholic school teacher by trade now and, you know, was um, try to stay active in my faith there. So I got to know the base chaplains fairly well. Took the training to become a Eucharistic minister, so the guy who gives out communion. Mm-hmm. And uh, my Sunday routine was, you know, I'd skip a little bit of sleep, but they had a 1300 mass at the outside chapel. So I go there and support that activity. So they had a kind of pseudo Burger King at the little food court thingy. And that was the only place that I really trusted for food. I heard some horror stories about guys eating pizza there and uh, wondering what, what was in the water and the coffee that they got uh, green beans or Gloria's beans, some, somebody's beans, you know. I, I, preferred the coffee that we had in the COC because somebody had a hookup with caribou coffee in Minnesota. So nice. we had this made stuff by the ton and uh, I got spoiled drinking that stuff, you know, the kind of coffee that'll take the enamel off your teeth, good, strong stuff, get your heart going. So zero three three, you're, you're wide awake. You are good, good to go. There's no drowsy, not off sleepyhead stuff, but I'd get my burger thing going and rack out for a couple hours. Probably one of the best least recognized leaders was my watch officer. He was a uh, love of God. I don't know how, as a damage controlman, you know, the guy who fixes the ship when he gets a hole in it, he was a chief damage controlman. He somehow signed on to be with NMCB 25. I don't know how his rate got brought in, but he was my watch officer. We didn't, I didn't have an actual officer, officer. There was nobody commissioned. And my watch was uh, 2,400 at noon. And that was seven days a week. 12 on, 12 off. And, uh, you know, you get in this little bit of a battle rhythm. I remember at certain times in the evening, I'd have to get a little posted thing with the arrow on them and, you know, write down significant event stuff. You know, you could see there's a stretch of road. Can't remember what the MSR, or the ASR was, but it was like right around the bottom of Lake Habanaya. Mm-hmm. And that stayed in the black always. It was like near Fallujah and Ramadi mm-hmm. and... I- I
0: think it's Michigan, if I remember correctly.
1: You know, yeah. uh, I've had to talk to some of my buds about that. Again, my, my little view of the world came through something that, like this, and we're looking at, big old Dolch, deal uh, worthy laptop. You know, it rids and giggles every now and again. I switch over to the uh, Predator drone feed and watch that bad boy circling around things. I do remember distinctly one night I was watching it, and I couldn't understand what happened because there was like this flash of light. And I could see a lot of, look like hazy smoke coming off it. And then, as the camera starts dropping back down again, I can see where the impact of the rocket was. I think there was a hellfire. So you know, hey, kind of kind of salty to watch that happen in real time. Um, you know, CBs. We don't normally lose guys. We're not like the Marine. You know, we're not like three five going in their head long. and. Uh, you know, picking the fight with the bad guys, where we build, we fight. So our, our whole design is that we do the construction thing for, first and foremost. And if we have to, we'll defend it. Our CB battalions have a Marine advisor. So we had a master sergeant who was an infantryman who straightened everybody up. His boss was a major. And uh, I, you know, I'm bouncing back and forth uh, as I remember things. But when we were still in Port Warnimi, there was a, a CE, a construction electrician was part of a convoy security team. They were training and he had an M4 and he had kind of loosely slung. And so the muzzle of his M4 was actually kind of sticking into his thigh. And uh, he's a tray He was a trays guy. I mean, you could run electricity, like nobody's business, but I'll never forget the look on his face. When this major came over, he said, CB on yourself, <laughs> put the fair God in him and I was, oh, well,
0: do you guys do a lot of ranges? You know, just to make sure that everyone's proficient with.
1: Oh, oh yeah. You had to qualify before you signed off to go over. I'd like to thank my uh, rifle range coach back in 82, because uh, he taught me everything I needed to know. And that was about the extent of it. Because again, my big field of expertise was in how to holler help and how to get good guys to do what they had to. When it came down to air assets, got had to be real good friends with the desk through the military internet relay chat, the Merck, you know, just talking to him real time. And I, at the time, thought he was at Al-Assad, but then he dropped a hint that he was actually in Fallujah. So yay technology and yay distance and yay real time. But, you know, I I was kind of drifting in this direction, but CBs don't normally take casualties and the most serious event in the Naval Construction Force happened during the initial invasion and it was... NMCB-14. Now, uh, the guy in charge, Rear Admiral Charles Kubik, denies to this day giving the instructions to have a formation in the vehicle yard, the Alpha yard. But somehow the word got passed. And being a bunch of reservists, nobody really thought twice about the fact that the shooting war was not officially really over yet. And um, so when they all assemble out there, because the Admiral was on his in, and... Uh, uh, that's when fighting Joe Iraqi decided to use some mortar rounds, And, uh, it was a mass ca- mass casualty thing. You know, there were some, some were killed, a uh, whole bunch of guys wounded. Uh, there's a picture. If you look around for CBs with purple hearts, where they're just a row of these guys from 14, who all have a little blue folder and a little purple heart medal on their camis. But the NMCB 25 had the dubious distinction of having the second highest casualty rate, and the Naval Construction Force. And June 5th, 2006, uh, I can't shake that one under my head for good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, I was on watch, and uh, you know what a FIPR is? No. Okay, so a little satellite thing that you have inside your Humvee. They have a messaging system, so you're sitting in the middle of nowhere, and uh, I forgot the name of the system, but the computer sends the message up, it sits in a satellite, it it down.
0: Uh, uh, U- it? Yeah, BFT, yeah,
1: yep. So that's, that was the messaging system. And um, it was like near 10 o'clock in the morning on the 5th. And I'm over with my back to my station because I'm putting all those little sticky things out there for significant events. And my uh, watch officer, the chief says, you got a fipper. I go over there and my heart sank. Uh, convoy team appliance, at had two K and um, I think three or four WIA. Um, their second vehicle and their convoy security team had a five stack, cracked the Humvee in half. Uh, the driver and the corpsman, they were gone within seconds. Uh, one of the uh, people that actually tried to rescue the, the corpsman, a lady by the name of Jamie Janke, she looked at him, he looked at her, and he said you could tell from her eyes she knew she was screwed, that this was going to be the end of it. The driver, EO1, Gary Ravinsky, um, he was gone instantaneously. The um, turret gunner, b one Dean Berlin, he was knocked out of the turret, and uh, I think somewhere between uh, 100 to 150 feet away from the vehicle, and it took him. Many, many, many uh, surgeries to get even near back to normal. Then there was UT1 uh, Hendrickson, who was the A driver who was blown through the up armored door, and uh, again another guy who spent plenty of time at uh, the naval hospital, and um, you know is still pulling 100% disability because of this. Uh, you train, you train, you train, and you do things like volunteer for combat lifesaver class because you think if, if it goes down, you want to be that guy to be there. And then something happens and the best you can do is try and holler help. Now, I don't know if it's ever happened even in the Marines, but uh, I can go on record here as saying that our our CO, once we notified him, I'm trying to find an apt metaphor here, but um, getting him into the COC before things were all figured out I don't know maybe if you took like a metal rod and just jammed it in the spokes of the bike as you're riding he just he, he cracked my morale in an instant because he goes over the map he's looking at Ripper section where the convoy was hit and the first thing he did was how fast were they driving wait a minute boss you're trying to blame the guys who just got killed for their own death this was his second tour in iraq by the way so He should have known better and he had a little bit of a tantrum because he threw his hands up and down, he stomped his feet and was swearing. And, you know, you want your commander to be the zenith of calm, cool, collected. It went out the window. The watch officer initially tried to bring up Al-Assad and he didn't realize that you really need to talk to like the desk in these things to get the air assets moving for the medevac. Again, damage controlman turned watch officer with some training, but not a lot. And through no fault of his own, he was trying to get, get somebody in LSI surgical to answer up. And by the time they did, the skipper said, no, don't do that. He reaches for the voice the over internet protocol, phone, you know, secure line. The skipper literally smacked the phone out of his hand. He looks at me and he says, get them on the radio. I'm thinking, what, VHF? That's not gonna happen jump on the SATCOM and I'm calling, you know, Ripper, Ripper, this is Jigsaw sending nylon. An line and I don't know what goes through some people's heads but I was getting stepped on, I think by every PFC in in country guys going radio check, you know, oh, this is uh, I can't remember Carson City, yeah, and then every, everybody's brother, I never got a Roger up from Ripper by the time that I got three quarters of the way through. They said, you know, where's B1 Farrell, who was the lead petty officer for the comm section. And uh, I ran the stuff over to him. He called it in on the VoIP. He already had smart cards set up for just such an occasion. So it was just a matter of wrapping stuff off. Uh, And, you know, 28 minutes into the event, everything was finalized, which is like, 27.3 27.3 minutes too long. It was considered a priority call, so nobody got in trouble for exceeding the, the time allotted, but it felt like just total shit. And then the, follow that up with getting off watch at like 1300, 1400, walking back at everybody in the battalion knew something had happened and saying, I can't talk about it. I can't tell you, I got nothing, sorry. And that just kind of became the burning pit in the middle of my stomach. But that got Chief England and me to doing a lot of thinking. And you know, being a, being a Pogue, I know some things like how to type and how to use word processing programs. So my comment to Chief was, is there a way that we can just put some templates for medevacs, for all these other things, IED strike on the laptop right there Put it with appliances stuff. Put them with highbrow because we had two convoy teams. Put it right there, and the minute something goes bad, it's just a matter of popping it up. Instead of like ten minutes to just fill it all in by keyboard, you got about two minutes. That worked. I had uh, used that lance corporal underground connection I had with the desk. He sent over the one. Yeah, it was one map. Yeah, we were under one map. Meth. One maps how to handle a medevac, and Chief England was vindicated because the merc was the preferred way real time, reaching out to everybody that had the knowledge of what needed to go where all the working parts. So, you know, we were at least ready because on July 12th, we lost one more bee and got a lot more injured. Uh, One of the things that the CBs were doing was MSR ASR road repair, as you probably are aware of the the impact of a 500 pound uh, bomb or a 155 shell under concrete at kind of least a big hole if you're trying to use traffic around that you, you got to fill it in
0: yeah for people who are listening and aren't familiar it's a main supply route and oh, a yeah, main supply supply route. route.
1: yeah so but highways highways think think mm-hmm. if you're in the chicago area the dan ryan but if there's like a 50 foot crater every you know 200 yards not easy to navigate and um, our guys our officers were, were johnny on the spot because they had engineered a way where the average Iraqi just couldn't grab a shovel and move three things of sand underneath the pavement. There was a big arc of rebar, like a half cone that went way in the ground. So whenever we did our repairs, they weren't coming back to the same hole to hit it again and made it a little more difficult for the other guys to get, get business done. But what we were doing, and I think this got changed afterwards was we were having one guy go into the blast crater and, and hold the plugger, the GPS. So we could get that 10-digit grid for exactly where the repair was going. And um, somebody in EOD did not catch the secondary device that was in there. And so uh, Builder First Class Jerry Tharp was killed. Equipment Operator Chief Hollenbeck was injured. I can't remember the other kid's name. Jeff Dale. Jeff Dale was also injured. One of the guys was actually seen by somebody... After the explosion, he was airborne, it was like bicycle peddling, trying to get back on the ground without hurting himself in air. That medevac went a lot smoother. And uh, we, we let the skipper know after everything was tied off and down. And then he came in and he kind of looked perplexed as to why he wasn't at the front end of this conversation. Uh, there was enough of us in, in headquarters company kind of figured, you know what? He needs to know, but he doesn't need to know right away. Um. You know, again, I, I can't compliment the Marine Corps direct air support center guys enough. There was one time when one of the guys I drilled with that in the reserve center in Forest Park, Illinois, he was one of the machine gunners. He's also prior service from Marine Corps. Now he's a SWIC operator. He got a gig doing active duty. But Mark Widmer, they sent us a fipper saying, you know, that they had an IED strike, not to worry. It only blew a tire off of a five ton, but they were going to need to get a tow truck out there. Oh, and by the way, the village that they were near, all the lights are starting to turn on inside the houses, Do my little dasky thing. Hey, what can you, what can you do for me? Two F 18s, rooftop high. My guy, Widmer said they flew in, they screeched that place. And all of a sudden all the lights that were turning on. Were like, dark, 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 dark. You know, it was, you know, a couple of, uh, bright spots, if you will. One of our guys, his job was a glazier on the outside and he would restore church windows. Cool. So he made, it, made a deal with the chaplains and a bunch of civilians in, in the Fort Riley area of uh, Kansas send over extruded lead and uh, colored glass. And so if you ever made it inside the chaplain Al-Assad, that's Don Haudry's, uh handiwork. And that was one of the guys who volunteered off time to help put him together. And I know absolutely squat about glazing beforehand. But he walked everybody through it because uh, so much of it was labor intense just making sure that the, uh, the putty was in there a certain way that you know the extruder lead that you're sanding down a certain way you know and so when it was all done it looked nice and pretty and churchy he got he got the uh nothing neat not the army achievement medal but one up from there army commendation
0: yeah, yeah. i know
1: we got the ma'am and then we got the Navy, Navy, commendation. The Navy
0: column, yeah so it's probably the same right
1: yeah yeah but and one of the only guys I know in the beast who got an army army medal, so go figure. During during 25 tour, we drilled water wells on the border for refugee camps. We finished up a hospital at a, a, a TQ. We did all sorts of civic work in terms of like rehabbing schools, and um, you know fixing the highways, and just you know trying to spend spread a little goodwill through uh, you know hammers and uh, wrenches. You know one of those. I don't know if it caused complacency amongst anybody or if it was just kind of a misdirect, but everybody that we were talking to would come back said they love the CBs because when we show up the lights work and the plumbing works again. You know, we did all these projects, repaired bridges, all sorts of stuff that you never will see in the news. You know, because this was the part of the war that actually, you know, put a human face on it.
0: It's, I'm sure it's frustrating too, you know, seeing all the work that you guys did. Like you said, you know, fixing buildings, getting the lights back on, making sure the water's flowing, which were huge undertakings post-2003 post in Iraq. But obviously, yeah. you know, there's no New York Times stories about it or anything like that. That's not a, a sexy, exciting story.
1: You know, one of our carmen, H.M. 3 Johnson She uh, actually got a Navy Achievement Medal for rendering aid to civilians. in the wake of an IED attack that didn't didn't affect our guys, but they came up on what was was the aftermath. And they did a security stop. She bailed out with her molly bag and uh, just did what Corman do best. For uh, what it was worth for me, Chief England, and this was unknown to me at the time, had documented all the stuff that he and I did and gave me most of the credit. And so I got a Navy Achievement Medal out of that, which that's as high up the food chain as I got There's no bronze stars, there's no silver stars. I wasn't a Medal of Honor nominee. Just all all those things that you might think come with having done a combat tour in Iraq, just not the case. My world was like a little wooden box with all sorts of computers and all sorts of radios and a lot of battle maps, a lot of the old fashioned kind, but these things were like 10 foot ceiling Mm -hmm. floor across the wall. I, I want to say it was close to a one-to-one representation, but I know that it's not really impossible, but it was big. It was real easy to find things on a grid and slap stickers up on that bad boy. Um, you know, I, I had the satisfaction of knowing that the, uh, the windows in outside Chapel were, were going to last past my tour. When I got home, I was right on the cusp of needing to re-enlist. And when I was over there, I noticed that the RPs religious program specialists or chaplain's aid. Mm-hmm. Um, While there were an overrate on paper, those who were willing to do FMF work were critically under, they were pulling guys from the individual ready reserve, the, the not even drilling reserve.
0: Yeah,
1: wow. We had the RP rate back to active duty because they did not have enough bodies again that were FMF qualified. And I'm thinking to myself, fire service Marine while I was there, I qualified as a CB combat warfare specialist, so I got to wear this little bug with a uh, little badge that was silver with like palm leaves and a CB and a rifle and a saber and all that Ura stuff on it. So now I, when I go out, uh, I look like Chesty Puller. But the uh, I was thinking it was the perfect union of things because here I am. I just came back from Iraq. I worked closely with the Marines. I was a lay leader, so I got the whole religion thing going in my background and they were looking for bodies. I had a conversation with more than one RPC, or chief, petty officer who was a religious program person, saying, you know, normally you can't get an RP anymore, but if you're gonna put in that kind of a package, they'll find a home for you. You know, I was kind of keeping an eye on the Foster Avenue Marines, 4th MARDEV. They have a, a place up in Foster Avenue in Chicago, and I, I live in the, in Northwest Indiana in Hammond. So I'm thinking this is going to be a perfect fit. But when I went for a re physical, I got, got, a bombshell moment there because the uh, doctor said, so how long have you been diabetic? Oh, wow. And that put the end of at the end of a 20 year, uh, wish to, you know, actually get to retirement there and be able you know get that base pay and all that other stuff. My wife was thankful though, cause she did not want me to go back. She had, she had endured. Two years of active duty time with the Marines, and I get no sooner did I would I get back from one field exercise, get my gear washed off, and then be going out again. In mean, the first four and a half months that we were married, she's I was in the field. Out of six out of six months, four and a half was spent in the field. She got she got to learn how to you know go to work and keep herself busy and stuff like that. And, uh, a lot of phone calls back to Indiana and, and the region here. She had her fill of that, and one more time deployment was more than her fill, and if I was going to go for seconds, that you know, um, I guess that was God's way of saying slow down. Yeah. But, you know, I, I have no regrets in doing any of this. If I could go back and do it again, I would. If I could have made it back there as, a, as an RP, I'd have been there. You know, I've got my my dearest friend in the world, he was a chief mechanic. Now he's a senior chief because he stayed with it, but he was a— so, CM1 construction mechanic first class uh, his name is Ron Wallen I'd lay down in traffic for Ron and uh, if anybody said anything bad about me in his presence he'd take a ball back to him so you know uh, we got that going on. His wife and my wife bonded when we were over when we were both overseas so they got to be really close and they were clinging on to each other when they heard that somebody died but they didn't get the who
0: yeah
1: uh, I was lucky though because I was in the COC right? I had access to email every time I showed up to work. You know, and I know guys who were on the convoy teams who just, you know, they were lucky to get a shower once a week, let alone get time to sit down and type out a note to mom and, and the kids. So, yeah, I was very fortunate in where I wound up and what I had to do. I, you know, I, I have no regrets in doing it. You know, in hindsight, it was absolutely necessary for us to be in Iraq. Tough call, because I think we would have been better served trying to just get Afghanistan all kind of smoothed out and straightened up rather than going into a new country and invading someplace and, you know, causing all that upheaval. And um, this is after we got the mice and ice stuff for the uh, the Humvees. So each one of our vehicles has an electromagnetic bubble around it. And you throw all your switches on. You're not talking on the radio, but you know you're safe. And so the guy over there with his uh, cell phone is trying to get that thing to go. He's blocked. By the time the convoy cleared, signal went through, the IED went off, and there were just a bunch of kids that were killed. And it just, that's one of those wakes me up at night things. And how how do people do that to children? You don't like the Americans? Fine. Get your AK and take a few pot shots. You really don't like the Americans? Stick a bomb under one of our vehicles. But these are your kids. They're Iraqi children. Yeah. You know, since then, I've done a lot of um, things. I've done some soul searching. Because I couldn't be with the reserves, I did take up a new hobby, something called Sea Cadets. So think like JROTC. Mm-hmm. But instead of being aimed at the officer corps, it's more getting kids ready for an enlisted career in the sea services. So I've been, uh, been with some of my, my kids to recruiters' offices for the Navy and for the Marines. Moms and dads in the CKDF program love me because I have the no BS factor. I know how it works. If they're looking for cooks, they're gonna make being a cook the sexiest, most glamorous job on the planet. And they're gonna try and get you to sign a six year contract for being a cook. And if you don't like getting up at two in the morning to make eggs for 5,000 people on aircraft carriers, you're not gonna be happy. You're gonna hate life. You're gonna wake up every morning wishing you didn't do this yeah this kind of sucks (laughs) but you know I believe that uh, was working still and working for the best country on the planet
0: alright that's our show for today I want to thank Carl for talking to me Uh, we talked for twice as long as this episode ended up being I had to cut out a ton just to keep the episode a reasonable length Carl you're a great guy Uh, if you're enjoying this podcast Please take a minute to leave a review online, subscribe to us on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on, or just tell a friend about it. I really appreciate uh, you all taking the time to listen to these conversations, and if you do any of those actions, it'll help other people find this podcast. Okay, thanks again for listening, and I'll see you this Friday, and I will have some intro music for you, so be excited. See you next time.